Welcome back, everybody. This is the greatest music NFT podcast show. I'm going to try something a little bit off the cuff here. I'm going to see if I can turn a history slash rant about online music and kind of web to music and where it's been into an entire episode. You know, to start things out, I want to tell a story that I think is not as well known as people should know. I think when we go and take a little bit of like a stroll down memory lane and think about the history of kind of why online music happened and how it happened. And what I mean is like, you know, I think people really start going back to like LimeWire and they think about the LimeWire era when they think about free downloads and you think of Napster. I think those are kind of like two of the big names that people really think about with like free downloads and stuff. And then you think of iTunes kind of saving the day in V1, version one of saving the day was the 99 cent store. And it was like, oh my God, thank you. A company put a price tag on music again. And it's not just going through the interwebs for free. And so that was like saving the day number one. And then, of course, I think the general public thinks that, you know, Spotify is V2 of saving the day uh, with streaming. And so we're going to kind of get into all that. But I want to take just one step back. And, you know, before LimeWire and Napster, there actually was a company, if you will remember, called Winamp. And they really started uh, and created the inception of the free downloading pandemic or endemic, maybe because it's never last or never ending. And I don't know if people even remember, you know, Winamp was like a hundred million download product. And at the time of the early dawn of the internet, you know, I mean, any app that has a hundred million users doing anything is quite a feat. But back in the day, that was like really something. And, you know, Winamp was one of these uh, consumer facing products that just had a lot for a lot going for itself. And one of the things that it was doing was this downloadable music concept. And I don't know the ins and outs of everything that happened, but, you know, one of the people that I follow uh, and, and I'm a fan of is Chamath Palahapatiya. And he tells a story of when he was working at Winamp. Somewhere in that transaction, you know, they had essentially written the code for what ended up becoming the code that Napster would then use uh, and, and AOL would go on to use and LimeWire would go on to use and all these companies would go on to use that allowed that peer-to-peer MP3 downloading or the peer-to-peer file sharing. And there was a very specific code that then somehow got leaked either within AOL internal or something. But... I just want the record to be known that it was Chamath and company that wrote the code for that peer-to-peer file sharing. And of course, you can't get too mad because it's one of these with technology. It's like if the, if one person doesn't do it, the other person will do it. It's just one of these inevitable things, of course. So that's not my point in bringing that up. But I do. I think the record should always be a little clear that you know it was this. As history shows, it you know Winamp definitely had. Uh, a major impact in where online music kind of has what happened to it. And so what did happen to it? Peer-to-peer file sharing became a thing. And then the, you know, music essentially became valueless when you could just get it for free. Right. 
And so the 99 cent store comes along, saves the day because it puts a dollar on it. And then you have all the premium stuff. But what happens, right? I mean, well, let's just kind of summarize this to make a long story short, of course, is in one sense, you know, the music industry turned into just, you know, the mass. Like, I know it's mass media, but it like forced the hand of having to go mass to to aim for the mass. It's like you had to, it became frilly and tchotchkes. I mean, even just like a little, like 10 years ago, I mean, look at like when Justin Bieber came out. I mean, this is in the social media area. I mean, this guy was discovered on YouTube and, you know, when he becomes so big, it's just like, it's the toothbrush, it's the this, it's the, you know, it's just like everything. And it's really interesting because, you know, I'm going to circle back at one point when, you know, in episode one, when I'm talking about the direct-to-consumer thing, you know, that's like a huge thing. You know, one of the people I also really keep a close eye on when it comes to this stuff is Logan Paul. You know, and Logan Paul is so big that, you know, he could go put his face on the brand of Gatorade or Powerade. And then even T- Tiger Woods back in the day had his own limited edition Gatorades. But the move Logan Paul did, right, is he went and created his own sports beverage prime and it looks like it's going to become just a wildly successful product and that kind of stuff and you look at the stuff that mr beast is doing with you know mr beast burger like yeah of course you can be like megan the stallion and and do the mcdonald's sponsorship and and that's still like super cool too but look at what travis scott did right with the hard seltzer that he had and i'm not sure if it's still going but what was it called like cactus or cacti or something like that But, I mean, that was like hard seltzer. It was like the only one on the market with uh, agave, you know, with agave instead of sugar or something like that. I'm not even sure. But it just shows you the power of the brand of these individuals, right? That they're not having to, you know, co-sponsor with a different brand just to, you know, they just need a distribution model that's there. um, And it is. So... It's really, really cool with Mr. Beast, right? In the ghost kitchens where, you know, really in the pandemic, I mean, I think ghost, I'm not sure how long ghost kitchens have been around, but I mean, that concept was really cool to to learn about that you should check out if you haven't heard about it. But, you know, these ghost kitchens are essentially, you know, restaurants around the country, around the world that want to bring on extra business that will essentially cook for other brands. And so Mr. Beast is able to create this burger company and doesn't have to own any restaurants. He can just go and uh, employ these cooks all around these establishments that already exist and have them on off hours or on different hours or just they can add more cooks inside the kitchen that are doing a different thing expl- you know, exclusively for this brand and they can sell it and with between the distribution network of those restaurants and companies like your Uber Eats and your you know your DoorDash drivers and these you know it creates this new this new world you know distribution model where you can do like insanely cool stuff like that direct to consumer in ways that you could have never thought of 10 15 20 years ago so constantly it's shifting right even just greater than the media, but just all this product. So you really got to think big with all this stuff. And um, that's what really kind of gets me excited about thinking about where Web3 music and what a music NFT can really even be. But it's showing the this kind of equity, this ownership, this direct-to-consumer model that's way different. And when that doesn't exist, you know, 
and you can't retain and establish your own value. I mean, that's one of the amazing things that's really been able to happen, right? I mean, it's kind of like sickening when you tell the history of like how music was just, I mean, it was just this victim of, of like its circumstance of like this inner, I mean, technology is so good and so great. And the internet was like so amazing for like everything except the valuation of music and this like weird and wicked sense. And, you know, the funny thing about all this stuff and just kind of like a life way is like, I feel like in some way it's like inertia, right? Like, like when Spotify comes out and saves the day with streaming, it's like, we can, we can agree that, you know, it's like, it's a better iteration. It's like, we need a, a better model, but like, it certainly doesn't solve all the problems. And so you would hope and think that there's a V3 kind of coming out in the future or something like that. And so, you know, that's kind of why I also look to this Web3 music stuff is... It is a little bit of this, you can kind of take it back, at least the option. It gives you these options. And I feel like you never really had that. And and going to like merchandise and the tchotchkes, like that's not really an option. It really was like something you had to do. I mean, you can't even sell an album anymore. You have to sell a t-shirt that comes with the free album just to get a sale to go through like on the online store. So when you look at Web3, you know, every artist is going to have their own pathway and, and some artists are built for the masses, right? But other artists, it's like, I think there's so much, I don't even want to say value because that's too vague of a word and I don't even mean economic, but just to be able for, an, you know, an, like a, an artist that's out there, like a prince type of an artist, right? That could be as eclectic and as creative and as imaginative as possible and was able to fuel that career and sustain that career through means that were direct to consumer, that were completely independently thought of their own and because the tools and the resources were there because of what technology and what the internet has kind of brought us all. I mean, you would think that that's how the value of music should be increasing and raising. And so that kind of hope and that optimism, I kind of, I do get back with web three music because web two music is so depressing when you look at kind of the ROI model of how it all works out. And so obviously it didn't end with the 99 cent store and it continued with the Spotify and all that. And now you got this streaming, right? And, um, you know, one of the examples you see out there on Twitter when they try and do the comparison is, you know, about 1 million streams on Spotify equals around 4,000 US dollars. And so, you know, forget what the current price of ETH is, but say that 2.5 ETH equals $4,000 too. So it's the same as 1 million streams. And say you're selling 25 NFTs at 0.1 ETH. And so you just make like a little use case example. You're like, if an artist were to say, go try and get a million streams on a new single you released today, or go try and get 25 people to mint an NF a music NFT at 0.1 ETH, knowing that the end result financially gets you at the same place. And, you know, this part of me, it's like, man... Like artistically, I'd rather find the 25 people that like give a damn about a music NFT in that way where you, you know, you talk about how that relationship can just be much more dynamic. Uh, and with that lesser number, it seems like you could be a lot more kind of thoughtful in 
what you deliver in terms of utility and stuff. Not saying that music itself is not enough utility. I think it is. I think art is utility. But you can also deliver more. I mean, it doesn't stop there, right? Not saying you need to go down the tchotchke route, but there's like a happy medium somewhere in there. You don't have to go Justin Bieber toothbrush, but we can find something else. So yeah, I'm not really sure what the point of this episode was, but it was kind of top of mind. Actually, the Winamp story was really top of mind. I'm not even sure I told that story the best way I could have. And I hope to God I don't have to retake this because it's like three in the morning while I'm recording this. But I just think that's like so amazing, right? Like Winamp is this 100 million downloaded product. Like they create the code for uh, peer-to-peer file sharing. It somehow gets leaked out. The company, I think, keeps it like this dirty little secret, sells themselves to AOL AOL like has never known what to do with themselves, right? Like they've never known like whether to go to like the browser game, the search game, the the music game. They could have been iTunes before iTunes, and they're just like a you know a news homepage or something like that. I'm not even sure what they do, and you know, and then essentially music becomes free, and it's like this inertia thing. Now everyone's free music, free music, free music, and you know, iTunes plugs the hole a little bit. And then, you know, it went to streaming. And, you know, another thing I just want to say, I'm just like a little random tidbit is like, even when you talk about like ownership in the web two world, it's kind of this quirky question. Cause you're like, who even needs to own music anymore? And you think of like, well, DJs need to own music, right? Cause you can't like just rely on Wi-Fi or something like that if you're going into an establishment. So like, I mean, imagine you're like a first time DJ and you get hit up to go do a 60 minute or a two hour set. And imagine all the music you would have to, you know, quote unquote, buy if, you know, if you were doing something like that. I mean, now there's a lot of DJ remixing services, of course, where you don't have to do that. You can just get a, you know, like a one-time fee kind of thing. But I digress. I want to advocate the change in inertia of music, whatever that may be. That's the flag I'm, I'm, I'm waving here. You know, my ears perk up with Web3 music, not because... I'm like, ooh, what's the quickest way I can become a shyster? But my ears perk up of, oh my God, finally, maybe an opportunity where, you know, this this increasing trend of kind of ownership being taken back, you know, from an individual level, um, from in a business sense, in a, in a business to consumer sense, what this can do and this whole idea of music NFTs and digital asset ownership um, which is the whole idea of NFTs is just really, really great. And I do believe there's a world where it lives in tandem with the Web2 world. It's not one or the other. I know sometimes I'm over here spieling like, you know, I might not even put stuff on Web2, but that's like my that's like my own personal MO. But I, I totally believe that even you take like a big, you know, Drake, right? Like Drake completely can keep his Web2 you know, bit, you know, his album release schedule, his his entire business plan, and then it's you know, Web three just becomes an additional feature to the to the game plan. It's not a, in replace of or in lieu of or something like that. So you know, it's just a little bit of this uh, intersection of the mass adoption that's coming. But in the time before that, you know, that's why I'm saying it's really you know, an independent artist time to thrive. You know, don't wait for the music industry and everybody else to kind of jump on this because they're always slow. So if they've done it, it's like way too late to get on there. So, you know, the time is now, I mean, 
the technology is being built, you know, right before our eyes. So that's what I have to say about that, man. But Web2 Music, it's been in a bad place for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's just been mild improvements. But then, you know, you get so discouraged when you know that Spotify is at the same time, quote unquote, the being dubbed as the savior of the music industry when they're lobbying millions upon millions of dollars in Washington, D.C. every single year, trying to pay songwriters less and less and less because that means they get to keep more and more money. And if that doesn't piss you off, I don't know what will. So, rant over. This was a little bit of a shot in the dark. I'll come back next week and we'll cover another topic. We'll talk about some more music NFTs because, of course, this is the greatest music NFT podcast show hosted by your friend, Beaks Vibe. And I will see you all next week. Mm-hmm.